Within weeks, some said days, it was ended after the first unleashing of the hellfire. Cities had become puddles of glass, surrounded by vast acreages of broken stone. While nations had vanished from the earth, the lands littered with bodies, both men and cattle, and all manner of beasts, together with the birds of the air and all things that flew, all things that swam in the rivers, crept in the grass, or burrowed in holes. Having sickened and perished, they covered the land, and yet where the demons of the fallout covered the countryside, the bodies for a time would not decay, except in contact with fertile earth. The great clouds of wrath engulfed the forests and the fields, withering trees and causing the crops to die. There were great deserts where once life was, and in those places of the earth where men still lived, all were sickened by the poisoned air, so that while some escaped death, none was left untouched. And many died, even in those lands where the weapons had not struck, because of the poisoned air. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Picha. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Welcome back, listeners. A few uh, items of business before we begin, as always. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Reader's K. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Reader's Karamazov. You can shoot us an email with a question or a request or just a comment about how much you like the sound of our voices, at thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. And you can listen to the pod on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, through most of your major podcast acquiring services. Please do, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. We always benefit from that. And um, if you would, tell tell your friends about the podcast. If you like it, if you've been following along, uh, make sure you are spreading the word. We are very much a fly-by-night operation, so we can use all the help we can get. We're back this week with my first pick of this season three, The Name of the Rose, which I'm very excited about. Uh, This is in part two, which is called Monks, and my pick is Walter M. Miller Jr.'s A Canticle for Leibowitz. As always, I'm going to give a little bit of a plot summary, and then I'll just run into my description of um, why I chose this book for the pod and and what I'm hoping to get out of it. So apologies, listeners, you have to listen to me for twice as long this time. Uh, But then I'll toss it over to Carl and Friedrich as soon as I can after that. Walter M. Miller Jr.'s Canticle for Leibowitz is kind of a fascinating book in a lot of ways. It's sort of his only hit single. Uh, He he wrote, I think, a sequel to this many years later that no one cared about. Uh, But it's sort of the the book that made his reputation and um, remains a classic of the science fiction genre. It's very, in in some ways, very much a book of the 1950s. It came out in 1959. It was written a little bit earlier than that. And um, is essentially set in the wake of a giant nuclear apocalypse, which, of course, was on everybody's brains in the 1950s. And um, 
it's really a story that's told in three parts. It's almost like three little novellas that then kind of chain together, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we get into the episode. Uh, but it tells three different stories about the monks of the Albertian order of Blessed and then later St. Leibowitz. And these are monks who live out in the desert somewhere in the sort of the mountain region of the United States, it's Colorado or Utah, somewhere in that, that area. And um, they're living out the mission of their founder, St. Leibowitz, who was uh, apparently a nuclear scientist at the time of the apocalypse. He then survived, became a monk and dedicated himself to preserving knowledge because in the aftermath of the apocalypse, not only was a lot of knowledge destroyed, then in the aftermath of that, the, the sort of mobs rose up against scientific knowledge and started destroying it. And so he and his Albertian monks named after St. Albert the Great, the patron saint of scientists, dedicated themselves to preserving scientific knowledge. And so the first of these stories is set a couple of hundred years after the aftermath, and it, it focuses on a young novice monk Francis, who thinks that he stumbles upon some relics of the blessed Leibowitz. He faces a lot of skepticism and resistance, but over time it's come to basically be proved that in fact these are genuine documents. There's a very important, it's a, a shopping list, the pastrami and different items on the shopping list, but then there's also a blueprint of some sort of device um, that they have found. And so uh, by, by the end, there's, there's a sort of push towards, and in fact happens at the very end of the part one, the canonization of St. Leibowitz as a saint in the Catholic Church. Um, we then kind of move forward about 500 years after that to a, a new era in the Abbey. At this point in time, there's been a rise in sort of nation states again to, to a degree, maybe somewhat like it would have been in the 1950s before the apocalypse happens. And the story focuses on Dom Paolo, who's the abbot of the abbey at this time, and his attempts to negotiate between different city-states or nation-states that are kind of at each other's throats. Meanwhile, he's entertaining a guest from one of the nation-states who is a scientist who's trying to essentially recapture a bunch of this scientific knowledge. Um, so he's, he's trying to deal with the basically the resurrection of scientific knowledge, a sort of new enlightenment that's happening a thousand years after the apocalypse. And uh, at the same time, he's trying to navigate the tricky political waters of the era. Finally, in the, the very third part, this is about a thousand years after that second part, we're in a new sort of golden age of science. It's a space age. There's, there's intergalactic travel. All sorts of things are happening. Um, and once again, we focus on the abbot of the abbey, uh, Father Zurchin, and he is trying to resist the forces of nuclear war that are once again rising after a long time when everybody thought it was impossible that there would ever be an apocalypse again. He's also planning for the future of really of Catholicism in general. He's preparing to send one of his um, monks, Brother Joshua, along with some others, into space to continue the mission of the Catholic Church in space. And he's also trying to care for people around the Abbey about midway through the story. An explosion does go off, and the Abbey has to take in people who have been affected by this. And so he's trying to navigate those different tensions. And then I won't say too much about the ending of the book. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, as we go along. But it ends in a sort of grand finale in several different ways that kind of bring some of these threads 
together. So that, that's the, the basics of the story of the three parts of the book. There's a lot more going on as we go through, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I just wanted to say a, a few things about why I chose this book. I, I kind of went back and forth between a couple of different options for this round for monks. But ultimately, really for me, it just kept coming back to Leibowitz. Um, it's a book I've actually, I think this is only my second time reading it. But the first time I read it, I was very struck by its vision. I'm not really a huge science fiction person, Carl's the sci-fi head on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I was really, I, I do like sci-fi that's more focused on the human element of things. And this book very much is, in a lot of ways, it doesn't really feel like science fiction other than the trappings going on around it. The, the heart of the story feels very human to me. But also, you know, I like the idea of essentially telling a sort of compressed history of the Middle Ages up through modernity in a new setting when life's had to start over, kind of start from scratch. I find that very appealing. And I think there's a lot of interesting thoughts about what it means to continue life after the end of the world. And so I think it's a very th a thoughtful book in that way. I thought it would be a good choice for us as we thought about what does it mean to, to live a monastic life, a life dedicated to prayer and work and maybe knowledge preservation as we certainly saw it in the name of the rose. What does that mean in a, in a completely new setting in the future when life has seemingly ended on earth and is having to restart? So I thought that would be a fun one. Um, and I, I want to toss it over to you all first just to get your first impressions because I believe this is basically the first time reading it through for both of you. So I wanted to know big picture what your thoughts were about the book and maybe, maybe how maybe it fits into our season. Um, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the more granular elements as we go. I mean, one thing I want to note is the structure really pulled me into this book. Um, the fact that it begins, you know, 600-ish years after uh, this nuclear disaster, the flame deluge uh, that they all refer to and speak of with some mystery. Not quite sure exactly what were the uh, things that led up to it because they're deciphering all of these old materials that have to do with it. That is, that story is unfolding. We have Brother Gerard decorating a version of this Leibovitzian document that he's then going to bring to the Pope. And uh, by the end of his section, he's pretty locked in as our protagonist. Suddenly an arrow soars through the air and kills him. And uh, this mysterious man, the old, the old man uh, who recurs throughout the book, buries him to keep him from the buzzards. And then we jump 600 years. That's when I was hooked by this book. And the second jump, 600 years, only drew me in further. And I think there's a couple of things that interest me about it in the relation to this season. But I'll just start by saying one, which is that, you know, with the name of the Rose, especially, we talked a lot about these men who live among books and manuscripts. They spend their days creating manuscripts, and they spend their days talking about the fine distinctions between arguments and manuscripts. And here we have monks who are creating a new library out of texts they don't quite understand. And... In doing so, they're they're kind of organizing an idea about what knowledge is, and in this version, it's knowledge about technology and science um, and mathematics. In the second section, there's especially discussion about the beauty of their mathematics pre-nuclear uh, fallout. And to me, that was interesting. That, that there's not just the idea about which comes out later in the novel about what what is knowledge really and how do we value knowledge really and what's important to think about as human beings trying to live. There's an emphasis on material value versus some sort of spiritual or intellectual value, but that they're constructing this whole corpus of knowledge having to do with science was interesting to me as opposed to the learning with which we're maybe more familiar on this podcast. 
To Soren's question, I thought there was a lot of interesting overlap with certainly the name of the rose. There is talk of divine laughter in some sense in this book as well. And as a science fiction book, I thought it was a really interesting take throughout on science and religion, something that I'm kind of interested in putting together in different ways. And this was a, a really, I think, smart way of thinking about how the two fit as well as contrast. And it also kind of reminded me of like a science fictional, like biblical book of Kings or something. There's like, you know, imagine the the biblical books of, of Kings over many centuries, right? Um, the rise and the fall and the rise and the fall. And this sense of how almost tedious that looks across so much time. It feels like it's the more time you look at. And in science fiction, we can look at a lot more than, you know, seven or eight or 12 generations or something, right? We can look at thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years sometimes. And that tedium really builds in. Or this like deep pessimism is not the right word exactly, but the sense that human nature will only prove itself again and again in the same ways over all of that time for what kinds of advances that might come scientifically, the wax and the wane, the rise and the fall of um, human civilizations will not last or progress beyond that kind of natural up and down. So I thought that was a really interesting way to think about the shape of history throughout the book and the science fiction and the religion added really interesting ways to think about those problems. So I really, I really enjoyed the book. Yeah, maybe we can start by digging a little bit deeper into kind of combining a point that you made, Carl, with a point that you made, Friedrich, to think about that flow of history as it relates to the structure of the book. Because Friedrich, as you rightly noted, I, I think one of the most stellar you know, from a literary standpoint, elements of the book is the structure because you have this story that's going along and you just think, okay, this is great. It's going to keep going. What We're going to learn about the lives of these monks. And then all of a sudden it's bam. And you see this wonderful, it's a wonderful literary cut as the buzzards mm. circle around his body. And then we lift up and all of a sudden we're 500 years later. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, of the bone cut in 2001 a space odyssey oh, where yeah, the bone maybe. goes oh, up I knew you're going for yeah that. it's i mean it's it's probably the obvious reference point but like you're going up into space and then all of a sudden it's the spaceship right it's that wonderful metaphorical connection between these time periods and part of what's going on there is it's it's a way to elide over you know some things that maybe don't matter as much but to show us these maybe these touchstone moments in the life of a civilization or a world civilization in this case in the sort of the beginning stages the nascent stages where things are still very uncertain and then in this period of great possibility and potentiality but where you're already seeing the seeds of the downfall being sown and then to this final moment where civilization again burns itself out and i really like that carl that idea of this analog here being the, the book of kings right which there's a little bit of that um, Miller takes a little bit of pleasure in playing up this sort of old-timey King James language in parts of oh, the yeah, book. That's great. This feeling of a sort of recursion of history that just seems inevitable and you can't stop, but you you know you want to sort of yell at the people involved to stop it, and they, they but they won't. I think that's a really interesting thing that he's baked into this book is this idea 
it certainly feels inevitable that this is going to just happen again and again, right? Um, maybe in slightly faster timelines as you go through. But I don't know what you all made, maybe a little bit more in depth about the way that these three parts connect together, or then also thinking about that in terms of what Miller's vision of history and sort of deep time history is in the book. And one thing that I'll say that I think commends it, just to continue on your point, Soren, uh, to commends it as a novel, is that even though it it's proposing that recursion and that sense of, you know, you can't escape man's nature as a violent or self-serving animal, that it doesn't fall into the the sort of trap of like, none of these individuals are interesting or they don't matter. Like, because that, I feel like I, I won't name any movies, but I can think of a few, few, few movies in the last few years that have come out where there's that sort of allegorical idea. This is all about some broader inescapability and this and in doing so, the characters fall flat. And this one, the characters are real. And in fact, that's part of why the structure is interesting because that first character you're invested in, Gerard, and then he dies and we move on from him. And so there, I think what Miller is successful at doing is is moving us across vast swaths of time without losing sight of these hyper-detailed individuals and their desires and wants. You kind of have like the second book, this uh, impending war, right between these tribes and someone trying to uh, expand his own empire in Texas. I, I also love the American Southwest setting, which we should talk about it, I guess in some detail, but as that war is sort of looming, there's this almost like two towers, Lord of the Rings setup where we're going to get the siege of the monastery. And then we just don't get it. It's gone. It doesn't even matter really to the story. And I think that where that comes out most to me, that tension between like this sort of length of time and how none of this how it's all going to recur and there's going to be all this violence and then the individual and how much the individual in fact matters and how much it depends on the individuals in the, in the final pages, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail, but there's this emphasis on like mercy killing and putting people out of their misery and uh, Abbott Searchy is strongly against that mm-hmm. and says, no, we need to keep living. We can bear it. Right. Yeah. Something I love about this, structure is that it feels dangerous but i very much as a reader love narrative surprises that really pay off and so killing the protagonist man is a great move that us either seasoned or skilled writer can really do very effectively and to miller's point that time confuses us that a certain age's meanings are capital m meanings for all of time uh, which is somewhat of a marxist point right he does a great job of saying cut 500 years later what was the point of that right Mm -hmm. and sometimes it is amazingly powerful how that little journey across the desert to save one iota of meaning from you know the ash bin of history or something could produce something else i love also when writers or creators have a narrative where they really invest so much in something and then it fails and then there's a a attempt to regain it and it just fails again (laughs) um and leaving the the audience with you know so much failure like that it's such a risk um Mm. for you know because people want to go to a book or a movie and leave happy right but to leave them with that sense of like how devastating and how much loss there is in life and in the world and in the universe right he does that well with his structure and that 
jumping 500 years really pays off for that you know so much time has been spent to get back learning that human beings have lost on the planet what will happen then surely they will have learned the history of themselves by now and mm. and are would be able to get over the same like petty nation state squabbles that have led to the destruction last time the technology's better they have more history etc right no the same human failing happens again it's another um, thing that happens a lot in science fiction is like this complexity ratcheting up and like you have these long space operas where there's this thing called the Kardashev scale where it's like type one civilizations control like their whole planet and type two controls like their whole like star or nearby star system and then type three they like can harness the entire like energy of their whole galaxy or something like that and Miller's point is kind of like who cares about <laughs> how much power what the scale is the fail the failure will always happen and it will be the same if humans are to be involved in any of this right so you're, you're saying he's not interested in keeping up with the Kardashians <laughs> <laughs> Um, or keeping up is you know not much (laughs) yeah can can i bring again bring two points together here because i I think i'm really fascinated by them carl i love what you're saying about this idea of failure and at the same time miller is really interested in investing those the smaller failures with meaning it's almost like the smaller failures have more meaning than the larger failures right Mm -hmm. in that we get in this first story you know brother Francis, Brother Gerard, um, spends like 15 years working on illuminating this manuscript, which is just a copy of the drawing of, um, <laughs> of Leibowitz's blueprint. And then he's on his way to New Rome for the canonization. He's bringing this illuminated manuscript along with the original to, to the Pope to give it to him as a present. And he gets robbed by these bandits. And the bandits see both pictures and they think that the the original is a worthless copy and that his illuminated version is the real version and so they steal it from him and he's like why did this happen 15 years of my life down the drain and but then the pope says to him like no think about it if you hadn't done this they would have stolen the original we wouldn't have the original right and then he goes back to get the original he's going to buy back ransom back the original and then that's when he gets shot we jump forward so there's that sort of ultimate failure there in his mission but that's imbued with a lot of narrative meaning in the text in a way that maybe some of the other failures of recuperating scientific knowledge and things like that aren't treated with that same sort of dignity and respect. And likewise, Abbot Zerchi at the end is, is like failing to prevent these terrible things that are going on around him. And yet there's a sense of meaning within the failure as he struggles on within the sort of very narrow limits of what he's able to do with his life. So I really like that idea. And I also really like the idea that you brought up, Friedrich, before of a sense of indecipherability going on. That's a theme, I think, running through the book in some interesting ways. One is that Miller gives us so much Latin that he just doesn't translate for us, uh, which is pretty wonderful. It's like, I, you know, I always associate Echo with being an author who just writes a lot of untranslated, like mm-hmm. French and Italian and Latin. But this book is full of untranslated Latin. And we're just supposed to kind of roll with it and just accept it of what's going on. But then there's also this indecipherability that occurs between the ages. They look at the blueprint. They have no idea what's going on with it. In part two, there's a character, the poet, and he's this sort of 
jester character and he has a glass eye and it gets taken from him and then in the ne- in the final section the people who took it from him have like preserved it but it's become this sort of religious relic and they have no idea what it means right why it got there and they think the poet's just some like mythical figure right from the past so there's a sense of the the indecipherability of history as well mm-hmm. and and there's that part of some of what you're getting at Carl with that idea of like humans never learning from their mistakes it's almost like a the, like a historical tower of Babel, like we are unable to decipher the messages of the past and apply them to our future. So, so I think that's a really interesting thing that Miller's doing is this idea that there's always these failures and it will be one thing, right? Like, you know, if, if this was like Samuel Beckett, right? Ever try, ever fail, right? Never, never mind, try again, fail again, fail better. It's like you can't even fail better. You're just failing in exactly the same ways over time because you can't seem to learn from the past and make sense of it. I think that it. is what he means when he says you, fail better. You think though. so? I really disagree with the like self-help model okay. version of that. I think That's that good that because it doesn't sound means. like Beckett to me when he says yeah, that. Yeah, so. no. I think he thinks that's supposed to be funny and ironic, like fail better, not like, not like yeah, get that tattooed on my arm so I look at it every day, fail better today i can fail better no it's that's i don't think he means it that way but that's just me should we talk about that point at, at the end then and the the many endings that you brought us to soren i'm curious what you put together as the as the endings but definitely father zerchi right is one of my one of my favorite characters in some ways and he's really struggling with something at the end we've seen by this point in the book that like trying to dignify something is very important and more important than shaping history maybe and through these cuts we've gotten a sense of that and he seems to say like you know if these large world historical events are going to happen again and we're going to go into you know maybe an age like another simplification again like we had in the beginning what can he do or try to do it's like convince people that like killing people to keep them out of suffering is like not in the best spirit of like human dignity and he's like trying to convince someone of that i wonder what you guys thought of that well for me if we're talking about the zerchi ending i don't know how much longer we can avoid talking about rachel because to me that's like the most memorable image of the book that will be burned into my mind long after we've stopped recording this podcast for the readers at home hopefully you you read this um but if you aren't going to read this one um there's a woman named Mrs. Grails who sells tomatoes is the way she says it. And uh, she's sort of unlearned and says at one point to Zerchi that she um, has to shrive God before she can be forgiven, right? Which is really important. But she has an infant head growing out of her shoulder that wears a veil and speaks not at all. But after the nuclear blast that levels the church in which he's giving her confession at the end of the novel and he's struggling Zerchi to survive buried to his waist in rubble. He's hearing this voice repeating what he's saying in a sort of weird mimic way. And it's the infant head, Rachel controlling the now more youthful body of Mrs. Grails as she's passed out in a seeming coma. Um, the adult head of this two headed body and seemingly dying. Um, Rachel comes to Zerchi and is repeating kind of what he's been saying to him. And he starts to offer her 
the body of Christ and she sort of repeats what he's been saying in Latin to him and gives it to him instead. And he says in free and direct discourse that he knew what she was and he sobbed faintly when he could not again force his eyes to focus on those cool green and untroubled eyes of one born free. And this was interesting to me in a book that has a lot about children and discussions of children, but also has the wandering Jew character Benjamin who comes to Thon Tadeo in the second part and is like, is, is this him? Is this the Messiah? And he says, no, it's not. And then we have this, I mean, this is a question for the two of you. We have this infant on the head of an infant head on the body of a dying woman who is seemingly here to save them, at least for Father Zerchi. What did you make of that? Because it's a puzzling and really, I think in some ways, a really touching moment too in the book when he's at his most desperate and needs someone to provide to him. Right before the passage you read is what I took as to be kind of the all-important moment here. I do not need your first sacrament, man, but I am worthy to convey to you this sacrament of life. Amongst all this dying and trying to convince people like not to just go out and kill everyone or kill babies too for the sake of like sparing them any future, it's this kind of image that like there's sacredness out there. It's explicitly tying Rachel to the Virgin Mary because... It says, he's repeating these words, and it says, Magnificat anima mea dominum, he whispered. And this is one of the few times we get the Latin translated. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaid. That's the Magnificat mm. of Mary from the Gospel of Luke. And he says, this is what, again, in free and direct discourse, he wanted to teach her these words as his last act, for he was certain that she shared something with the maiden who had first spoken them and because it's earlier said she doesn't seem to need the sacrament of baptism but she's able to give the viaticum the last rites that's again a connection to the idea of the immaculate conception of mary mm-hmm. and there's a so there's a some sort of weird innocence about rachel but again i think that that name is very well chosen as the one who sort of like weeps over the dying children right of Israel. So it's a it's a well-chosen name there. He's kind of playing two biblical figures off against each other within that moment. But it's a, it's a you're right, Friedrich. It's like an absolutely haunting moment of just bizarre and, and terrifying and uncanny, but also very touching. You're right. I have this quote from Thomas Merton that I thought filled in nicely there that I think is really interesting. In Thoughts on Solitude, he says, in our age, everything has to be a problem. Ours is a time of anxiety because we have willed it to be so. Our anxiety is not imposed on us by force from outside. We impose it on our world and upon one another from within ourselves. Sanctity in such an age means, no doubt, traveling from the area of anxiety to the area in which there is no anxiety, or perhaps it may mean learning from God to be without anxiety in the midst of anxiety. And I think that's kind of what Zerchi's trying to do at the end there. He's literally going between these two zones, and it's like a time of anxiety, right? And like, you know, for Kierkegaard and Auden, this is still the age of anxiety in some ways, right? But he's trying to get out of that sense of anxiety. And this pairing I like right here that Merton gives us sanctity is the kind of way of getting out of problems and problematizing, right? In academia, that's kind of the coin of the realm. 
um, how can something be problematized, right? But sanctifying things and sanctifying, just, just seeing that act, this very uncanny act as sanctifying life itself in some way, I thought was very interesting and similar to Friedrich, yeah, it really will remain with me. A reason I'm interested in the moment too, specifically as in this character, Rachel, as the, the figure who's sanctifying things, who's, as Soren's saying, occupying the position of the Virgin Mary as Rachel, Old and New Testament moving across these, not really locked in to either one. There are a couple of discussions of, or, or uh, references to children as like an historical idea um, the histor- like the ch- children of history throughout. At one point, Dom Paolo in the church in the second section is thinking to himself in free and direct discourse about their collection at the Abbey of these Leibovitzian and other documents. And he says, treasured fragments of a dead civilization there were indeed, but how much of it has been reduced to gibberish, embellished with olive leaves and cherubims by 40 generations of us, monastic ignoramuses, children of dark centuries, many entrusted by adults with an incomprehensible message to be memorized and delivered to other adults, imagining himself as the sort of child of history who's just in this, as Soren was saying, realm of indecipherability. That's just a reference to children that I don't know if I have a strong connection to Rachel, but the second one I think does, which is uh, when Benjamin, the, the wanderer of the first section, who comes into the second section and claims to maybe perhaps be millennia old. Uh, He's a sort of wandering Jew figure, apparently. He's talking to the abbot, and he says he has no sympathy for him. Uh, The books they stored away may be hoary with age, but they were written by children of the world, and they'll be taken from you by children of the world. You had no business meddling with them in the first place. And then the father says, now you care to prophesy? And he says, not at all. Soon the sun will set. Is that prophecy? No, it's merely an assertion of faith in the consistency of events. The children of the world are consistent too. So I say they will soak up everything you can offer, take your job away from you, and then denounce you as a decrepit wreck. That accusation goes along with the sort of stuff we're talking about, the recursion of history in this and how it's sort of futile to be resisting that. And yet at the end, instead of having this child of history coming in to put Father Zerchi out of his misery in the way that Benjamin seems to suggest she would. She comes to give him mercy in some way, I guess, uh, a mercy that lets him live even as he's dying and seems to promise something new. I don't know what either of you thought of this sort of pattern of children in history in this or just to keep going on Rachel for a little bit because I think she's interesting. What that brought to my mind, oddly, Friedrich, as you were talking about that, that kind of really clarified a theme for me in the book when you're talking about when you're reading that passage about the children of the world as Benjamin sort of calling out Father Paolo. What that brings to mind is this this passage in in the Gospel of John where Jesus says to like the unbelieving people around him like you're the sons of Satan. He was like a murderer from the beginning. And that's one of these weird themes that's running through the book is the presence of the demonic right there's this talk, all this talk about Lucifer and I think it's calling up the image of you know, when, you know, in the Bible, when it says, I saw Satan fall like lightning, I think that's a mirrored in the image of the bomb dropping. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that to be rapacious, to be greedy for power and domination is to be the son of Satan, to be a one who seeks out murder. And it's been that way from the beginning. And you have this sort of weird, at one point, you have a weird retelling of 
the book of Job. It sounds like it's straight out of the book of Job, the beginning where Satan goes to God and says, let me tempt Job. And But this time around, he's tempting the princes of the world and the princes of the world are taking the bait and they're dropping the bomb. And, right? and so it's this sort of, again, a sort of cyclical thing where the children of the world or the children of Satan are the ones who are doing this this grabbing for power, and that is what's bringing about this sort of cyclical destruction. Again, the, the, this empire, and it's the people who are maybe haltingly, but somehow outside of this cycle who are able to break free from the power or the temptation to do those things. And so you have the monks who have no sons, right, who, can, you know, who don't reproduce on their own, who can only draw and attract, who can break out of that. And then then you have Rachel at the very end, who is a, obviously a creature who could never, you know, reproduce, I guess. I mean, you know, like she's attached to Mrs. Grail. She's not even a, her own independent person. But she has that that innocence about her that makes her able to extend mercy, which doesn't seem to be much in play in this world. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an interesting parallel there, this idea of a family resemblance going on right? You're going to resemble your father. And if you're a murderer, then your father is Satan, right? And you resemble him. But if you're not, if you resist that and break out, then there's some hope of carrying on into the future. Yeah. Friedrich, you really shored up a few things for me too, but in a slightly different way than how Soren saw it. I think that the Rachel Mrs. Grail's image or person is a symbol of this kind of like Ecclesiastian, you know, idea, right? That like an age is always being born and an age is always dying, right? In this one figure, that's literally the case, right? And it's the way I saw it there is a bit counter to Soren's part that it's inescapable. Like throughout this book, that's just the rise and the fall, the cyclical nature of human folly. You know, there's like a high and a low to human folly, but it's inescapable across thousands of years in into the stars, you know. When Bezos or Musk or anyone takes us somewhere else, it's going to be the same kind of, you know, story of human history. And then, so the mercy there, it kind of brings us, uh, brings me back to like the end of Middlemarch in a way and makes me think about Middlemarch a lot differently. Mm-hmm. The quiet life and the small moments has all the more impact for being the worthier candidate for the transcendent is not the scientific breakthrough or the ultimate change in history that will set us on some new course, right? It's in fact the small moment of mercy or grace or like real compassion that a person finds. Those are the moments of like breaking the personal cycle of folly that is possible, but the like species cycle doesn't seem to ever be changing. Uh, So that's kind of how I read it based on what you said. You're both clarifying things for me as well, so thank you. A touch point for me as I was reading this, this is going to go right into Soren's bread box here, is Aldous Huxley a little bit in uh, After Many a Summer Dies the Swan. It, throughout that book, he's talking about like the time-constricted like values of people, right? And anyone living in a time-based world is eventually going to not achieve anything real. Like You're not going to get anywhere striving after power, striving after knowledge, striving after whatever. You need to be thinking about like justice or or whatever beyond the category of earth and time on earth. And at the same time as that's happening, it does become about your individual acts. So I like what you were saying, Carl, too, about this idea that like in Middlemarch, it comes down to the hidden lives. 
and the small moments. Because this book is a big book and it has big yeah. moments, and yet it, it coyly keeps some of those big moments in the background and brings us in on the, the human and the personal. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Carl, that there is this sort of big picture, I don't know if despair is quite the right word, but like pessimism about what's going on. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the very end of the book, we have this climactic chapter with Father Zerchi and Rachel. And then there's this one small chapter at the very end, just a page, basically. And it's the, the spaceship leaving Earth with the with the, the brothers and the fathers on board to go take, you know, Catholicism into the new realm of space. And then we end with a, with a familiar, sort of slightly redone, but familiar image, because each of the past two sections has ended with buzzards hovering above, right? Which, again, is that symbol of decay, the idea that you're just becoming buzzard food, right? And then, uh, and even, in, I think in the second the second to the third one, there's like this kind of joke about how the buzzard himself is like eating good right now, but then he's about to become dust, basically, mm-hmm. right? But then at the very end, we kind of get a, a, a twist on that because we end in the, they've taken off from the water, there's a plane hanging out, seaplane there, and then we end with sharks, there's just sharks there who are going to come and eat. And they're sort of the buzzards of the sea, I guess, in this image, right? But you're right. There's like this, there's this idea that... Chicken of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> there's this idea that the, these sort of human glories are going to fade and be eaten away no matter what. And and what kind of matters is maybe, I, I like that idea, bringing us back to Middlemarch throwback moment there. Like what matters is those small moments, those those lives lying in unmarked tombs. So I think that's really good or unvisited. Is it unvisited? Unvisited tombs. So, so I, I like that image a lot of, of sort of, these are the moments. And again, that's where he brings us narratively. You're right, Friedrich, that he doesn't play up those huge moments of destruction. They just sort of hat, you know, kind of happen in, around the edges. And what matters are these moments of human interaction and human decision about what's going on. We don't get, you brought us to it earlier. We don't get the siege of the abbey. We get the Thawne, the sort of scientist figure, unwilling to make a positive moral decision to stand up for, for the right thing, even though he knows it's the right thing, right? So we get those those human moments rather than those big climactic action moments, which I really like a lot. Which to draw us to one more book that we've read on this podcast, this is, I don't even have a really a point to this other than to just say that it's similar, is that Samuel Delaney, Trouble on Triton, has those big war background things going on that are background. They greatly affect the characters' lives, obviously, but they're not the thing that he's interested in as an author. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that. Can, can we turn a little bit? I know, Carl, you're really interested in talking, you mentioned this at the beginning, about science and religion in this book yeah Uh, obviously it's a a work of science fiction but it really is steeped in catholicism from beginning to end Mm -hmm. and i want to broach it in this way and then i'll throw it to you to to get your thoughts on it carl and friedrich jump in whenever you want to what i find interesting about this book's vision of maybe we might call it the conflict between science and religion is it is a very in the end a very Catholic idea of that conflict and not a Protestant idea. And so you get these jokes, you know, there's a joke in the second section. They're trying to figure out where did life come from? And one of the monks is like, hey, have you thought about this this idea that like humans maybe evolved? Like, have you read Augustine? He's talking about that, right? And so you have this undermining of the sort of classic 20th century science religion conflict, at least in the United States, about evolution. Miller's not even interested in that. And that's a pretty Catholic thought. It was like, who it doesn't matter. Who cares, right? <laughs> this is not interesting. And, and instead, what he's interested in is this, we might call it the is-ought conflict or something like that. Um, I've been reading uh, 
this book written around the same time as Canticle uh, for Leibowitz by Jacques Ellul. It's called The Technological Society. And in it, he's drawing up these ideas of technique in society. And he says at one point, basically, he makes the claim that in the technological society that we live in, which is not just about industrial progress, but it's in fact about a rearrangement of human life itself. He says under that, the only rule is whatever is possible is necessary. And that seems to be the guiding idea of the humans in this book, right? That whatever is possible is necessary. We must do these things because we can do these things. And certainly the thon in the second part is driven by that sort of greedy desire for knowledge. And that's the point at which the the sort of the monks are pushing back at every available moment. It's not just about what you can do. It's about what is permissible, what ought we do, and what should not be, you know, what, what Pandora's boxes should not be opened. So, Carl, you're looking eager to jump in, so I'll, I'll leave it to you here. <laughs> it's going to be my worst joke ever. It's as if they're saying, all night long, let me see that thong. No. All night long, let me see that It's necessary, the thon. The thon song. <laughs> we had a swan song, now we had a thon song. <laughs> uh, okay, sorry. But what you're saying, to me, uh, the book is really interested in that debate with the characters of Thon Tadio and Brother Cornhoer, is I think how you say it. And... I used to drive a cornhower. Also a terrible joke. But the Thon is very surprised, as are many kind of like hardcore atheists sometimes, that like this deeply monastic, deeply religious person is kind of like very scientifically skilled and technologically skilled, right? And then um, to your point, Soren, and to Alil's point, right, he's like taken aback by the fact that there could be a person so skilled who doesn't see some kind of imperative to making anything he can make with that skill. And in the fifties, that feels very wrong, right? It's like, we just watched like the czar Bulma or whatever go off and uh, the world's biggest bomb that could take us all out or destroy the entire planet's life systems. The, the is is no longer an ought, right? With respect to what we can make that much destruction seen as uh, something not to be necessitated into the world. And I love this idea that the brother says on page 225 of my edition, my vocation is to religion, that is to a life of prayer. We think of our work as a kind of prayer too, but that he gestured toward his dynamo for me seems more like play. And they kind of go back and forth a little bit. But the idea that religion and science need a sense of like prayer or imperative or like ethical imperative to what is made and then play in like a safe sense of playing with what can happen and what can be done and not being too rigid, that both practices need both of those styles, I thought was just like a really wise way of looking at religion and science and how they overlap. That sense of play is really key. I think you're right, Carl, to both of those endeavors. And, and it, what it brings to my mind, if we think about this middle section as being essentially 
you know, a redo of the, the, the scientific revolutions, you know, the, whatever, the Age of Enlightenment, which is also the Age of Nation Craft, right, as it's budding. It is the idea that so many of this, the scientific breakthroughs that we have from that period are a result of essentially amateurs or a sense of playfulness going on. It's not codified in a university setting as it is today in large part our scientific discoveries. And maybe the point there is that for these people, for people like, you know, Newton or whoever, right, there is a sense of play involved in it. It's a, right. it's a playfulness. It's a creativeness that comes in part because it's unyoked from industrial technique. And so the Thon, Thon Thaddeo here is like a sort of representative of that new mindset where these things are useful insofar as they produce a result. And they're not useful insofar as their ends in themselves of knowledge, right? Because this is fun. This is playful, right? And the other side of that coin, I think, is the recognition that then there are times when playtime has to end, right? And, and there's a, the wonderful moment where Don Paolo takes away the, the lamp that he's made, the arc lamp that he's made, and he puts the crucifix back up and he says, it's over now, right? We can't do this anymore. This is like not the time for it. There's a sense of balance there where you have to have that that playfulness within limits, right? And there's there's mm-hmm. points at which you can't go beyond because then it ceases maybe to be play. Just like, you know, you got two kids like whacking each other with sticks, right? So at a certain point, you got to step in and be like, no, no more sticks, right? That may or may not be drawn from real life. Uh, <laughs> so, right? So, so yeah, I, I like that a lot. I think that, that there's that idea. And, and one more point to make, and I want to toss it to Friedrich for thoughts, but I was really struck by your point just a minute ago, Carl, about, you know, sort of science itself involving a sort of prayer. In this book, we also see science itself as involving a, a tradition, which we don't often think about, right? We think about science as, you know, just an objective set of facts or something like that. But but in reality, there's like a handed down tradition and so much is lost for them that they're having to rediscover and they're starting from scratch. And like Don Thaddeo gets really mad because he keeps just discovering stuff that they already knew in the 1950s. Yeah. And he's like, crap, <laughs> I just learned another one, right? And so it's like reinventing the tradition from these scraps that you are you find lying around is like is a huge loss to have that loss of continuity of of a sort of a sense of scriptures that you've handed down, the Principia Mathematica or whatever, right? Einstein, that sort of thing, right? Those sacred texts coming down to, to, to scientists to build on. There's that sense of a continuity that's been ruptured there as well. So I like that. Those are all, I think, productive thoughts. I'm trying to think about where to begin. These are all great thoughts. You know, I, I like this too of uh, you're talking about how there are these texts handed down that he doesn't have access to and Thontideo ends up just reproducing knowledge that has existed before. Such a, a Miller point to make in his sense of history, right? That you're just repeating your discoveries. You're not really, even if you're inventing something new, as Carl and Sorn have both suggested, it's sort of like, yeah, well, so what? You've invented some new material thing. And what does that do for you as a human being? And I like this book as participating in like a larger category of 20th century and 21st century things like Twin Peaks The Return that are like seeing the nuclear bomb as like the new original sin point and then everything that comes after it is just referring back to that always that's sort of sort of like what's going on at the beginning of this book but I like what you were saying Soren about taking down the arc lamp that brother Kornhauer's made and putting the cross back up because this is a book that has that really strong sense of the importance of religious devotion and the importance of thinking beyond the material. And there's a point that stood out to me that I think plays to that, what you were saying about the idea of play and then seriousness, 
where Abbot Zerchi is uh, thinking about the image of Christ as one that's so nice. It's just this nice image uh, saying, suffer the little children to come unto me. And then he's saying, but this nice image, you can't also imagine them saying, depart from me into everlasting fire, accursed ones, and flipping over the tables at the temple and flogging the moneylenders. There's this, I don't know if you saw this, Soren, recently, but there's this intro to the book of Mark that Nick Cave of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds wrote, where he essentially saying the same thing. The reason I love Mark is because he's like, I can just sense Jesus's impatience with humanity in this book, that it's not just nice. It's not just salvation. It's anger and frustration. Why aren't you improving? Why aren't you getting better? Why aren't you listening to me, to my, even to my disciples? Why aren't you listening to me? What I'm really saying. And I feel like that sense of urgency is present throughout the sort of science religion uh, intertwining that's going on in Miller's book. That's a great moment to bring us to Friedrich in part because that's the statue that he's seeing is this statue outside of the killing vans basically where they're doing these mercy killings of people who've been irradiated and <laughs> it's a wonderful you know striking moment because he says it's sort of like this completely again it's sort of this idea of an indecipherable figure it's a composite image of everything they they like polled everybody to find the most pleasant image you could imagine and like that's what they turned into the statue <laughs> and it's like this weird it's like the the human being from community like the, like the weird mascot right <laughs> the, gray. the gray like but it's this i think very insightful idea that the sense of a loss of definition and and sort of everything kind of blending in and what you're left with is this sort of soft kindness but it's a it's a kindness that is horrifying if you dig beneath the surface of it and that's essentially what these tents are it's like very understandable i think in the book there's this doctor character and he sort of represents that well we got to kill people because they're irradiated they're not going to have a good you know they're gonna have a terrible life now they just need to die Um, that's the only merciful thing to do it's this this is sort of fascinating conundrum that miller set up Um, i think about this a lot this is like a catchphrase of mine, like modernity likes to pat itself on the back for solving the problems that it itself created, right? (laughs) And so there's this idea, it's like, hey, good job, like we're going to mercy kill you because we couldn't stay away from dropping a nuclear device on you and turning your life horrible, which is contrasted then with the monks who insist on the dignity of human beings, even those who are mutants, right? This is a word that comes up sometimes in the book. These, you know, these two-headed, six-legged, whatever people, right? These people who seem to be outside of normal human society, even they have some sort of dignity. And it's hard sometimes to know what to do with it. Mrs. Grails keeps wanting to get Rachel baptized, right? And nobody wants, they're not allowed to do it because they're uncertain about the canonical status of this. In the end, it turns out she doesn't need to be baptized, apparently. But there's this idea that even in the midst of that sort of, this horrible disfiguring, there's a place for like a a mercy that's not the same thing as kindness. Um, And there's that, that need to draw distinctions so that we understand the difference between, I don't know, right and wrong, however you want to frame that. But then there's also within that a a place for human dignity as well. Yeah. It's a very anti-modern book in a lot of ways. I thought to go a bit back to part two, which I think we haven't talked about as much. The real argument there that you get through the better parts of Thontadio are this this idea of just how um, much it pains him as a person who just wants to discover and think and learn and and find out new things about the world. It's a very honorable kind of aspect of his character, right? You can tell how it 
absolutely pains him how tedious it is to like pay fealty to a patron and there's a clear analog here with like nationhood or also like the toil of one's nine to five job (laughs) and nowadays right like if that's not your like calling if it's your you know just job that you need in order to get sustenance so much toil has to be suffered in order for like learning to happen and then also like to one of Soren's earlier points like everything is a tradition like to go to get to kind of one of those old dichotomies between the modern and the traditional right um like science is a tradition this whole idea that there are books and that through them we pass along knowledge and like how to build the dynamo like a very important thing you know for like a a global civilization Um, the book calls it a cultural inheritance right but like it's a it's a tradition you need to have this idea that like people ought to read books for that to even be allowable and for that to happen you need like some political stability and you just get this huge sense that like without a long series of many kinds of traditions none of that's possible and sometimes people think like oh you know we just wake up we do all these things we can do whatever we want there's no traditions everything's changing all the time you know school can look like this or jobs can look like that you can work from home you can do this no that's all still part of a tradition and if if we lose a certain sense of why we're doing that everything falls apart really quickly i just thought the the second part of the book really made a good argument for that hopefully that makes some kind of sense speaking of traditions themselves like the one on this podcast to go back to our homing book of the name of the rose and the kind of central debate at the end there about laughter and whether christ laughed or whether god would laugh there's an important point in the canticle of Leibowitz that goes back to that same debate at one point miller writes surely the saints must laugh in heaven the psalmist says that god himself shall chortle but abid malmedy must have disapproved god rest his soul that solemn ass how did you get by him i wonder you're not sanctimonious enough for some that smile who do i know that grins that way i like it but Someday another grim dog will sit in this chair. Cave Canem. He'll replace you with a plaster Leibowitz, long-suffering, one who doesn't look cross-eyed at flies. Then you'll be eaten by termites down in the storage room. To survive the church's slow sifting of the arts, you have to have a surface that can please a righteous simpleton, and yet you need a depth beneath that surface to please a discerning sage. I thought that was a nice a bit of ars poetica, maybe even, on Miller's part. Science fiction was still, you know, at the time, a bit of a lowbrow cultural thing. But there's definitely, you know, highbrow Latin and dense theological debate and illusion going throughout the book. But the point that, you know, God himself shall chortle, not the synonym for laughter I would have used there, but um, (laughs) chortling makes me think of like the comic book guy on The Simpsons or something. But um, I just wondered what you all thought of that. Is this book trying to say that the Canticle of Leibowitz, another writing, which is somehow like included as a remnant or a relic in this book itself, is that depth and surface um, that can please a righteous simpleton and a discerning sage such as yourselves? I'll let you determine if you conceive of yourself as sage or simpleton. That's such a wonderful moment to bring us to Carl as, as we kind of wrap up here. It also makes me think of our previous book, Narcissus and Goldman, because in this moment, we're looking at a, at a statue, right? It's been carved. And so that wonderful connection 
to capturing, you know, in that book, Narcissus and Goldman, there's the idea of capturing the reality of a person or maybe a composite of several different people into one place. And this statue of Leibowitz that's been carved is wonderful to the abbot precisely because it has some sense of the reality about it. And it's not that plaster image, right, which is the tend to be those very serene religious figures that are very ugly, in fact. Uh, but it has the reality, the sort of the warp and the woof to it. It's not as lasting maybe as a plaster image, but it has a different sort of pleasing quality to it insofar as it's, it, it suggests a real person, right? The idea of the eyes crossing as the flies go by it. There's a, there's a reality to it. And I love... A, and it's sort of Mona Lisa smile that it has yeah, referred to a few times. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. And, and then the other point you brought us to here, which is that maybe art in some sense to make it to last has to be both of those things at once. It has to be pleasing on the surface to the undiscerning eye, but then it has to be beguiling to those people of real taste or something like that. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think I like that, especially that idea as an Aris Poetica for this book, the idea that we're getting these thoughts that are somehow important, even beyond, right? It's wrapped up very much in a contemporary problem for Miller, which is, are we going to get blasted to hell by a <laughs> nuclear bomb? But really under the surface, it's interested in exploring these lasting questions, right, that go beyond the immediate moment. And then all of that sort of wrapped up in this confection of science fiction and there's spaceships and there's all these, you know, these things going on and there's war. And one thing that we didn't talk about, but especially in the second section, there's almost a kind of a Western feel to it as well. Like, so it's got those, those lowbrow elements, as you call them. But then there's something very serious going on at the heart of it as well. and something more, more literary, I guess. Sorry, that's a terrible term. But like, it's a little bit more lasting than, you know, a 50s paperback that you might find uh, at the dime store. So I think that's really good. I, I like that, that uh, a lot as, a, as a, an ending place for us. With that being said, we're going to wrap up uh, for now this episode. We will be back next episode talking about our final book, of our first cycle of the season, Monks, uh, with Carl's first pick of the season, which is Yukio Mishima's The Temple of the Golden Pavilion. Once again, we're taking the idea of monks, turning it just a little bit. Now we're moving to the realm of the Buddhist monastery, away from the Christian monastery. So we will be talking about those traditions through the lens of that book next time. I'm very excited about uh, talking about that with both of you. Uh, until we get to that point, though, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. Oh, those Russians. Yeah.